Welcome to episode 130 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is excited to offer members a new way to explore their interests with the new Plus Catalog. This holiday season will certainly be more special than last. It's finally time to gather together and exchange thoughtful gifts with the people you care about. In the midst of all the holiday excitement, think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the absolute best time to do it with a special offer of 60% off your first three months. With Audible, you can listen to more of whatever you're into because Audible has it all. An unbeatable selection of audiobooks, tons of binge-worthy podcasts, and exclusive originals. All available to download or stream. Here's what you get. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month, like the latest bestseller or hottest new release, yours to keep forever. You can listen to Melanie's book, What, When, Wine, or either of my books, Delay, Don't Deny, or Fast, Feast, Repeat. And coming January 4th, you can listen to Cleanish. Here's the best part. You also get full access to Audible's streaming library, the Plus Catalog. Discover your next podcast obsession, check that audiobook off your bucket list, or get lost in a world of original content from celebrity creators, best-selling authors, and leading experts. The kind of stuff you can't hear anywhere else. Stream all you want, as much as you want. No matter where you're going or what you're doing this holiday season, you'll always have just the right thing to listen to at your fingertips. Now that I'm doing a lot of driving to the beach and back, Audible is the perfect companion for each trip. There's so much to choose from that I will never be done finding great options. Right now, for a limited time, save 60% on your first three months of Audible. That's only $5.95 a month. Give yourself the gift of listening. For more, go to audible.com slash ifpodcast. That's audible.com slash ifpodcast. Or you can text ifpodcast to 500-500 for 60% off your first three months. That's definitely a gift you'll love to give yourself. And now back to the show. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during 
during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 130 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. 130, I feel like, I don't know if that's a milestone. It feels like it. like that too. When you said 130, I was like, that's a big number. Yeah. It's exciting. I guess we're a real podcast, right? (laughs) A real boy. (laughs) So how are things with you? They're going great. Completely unpacked at the new house, settling in. I had a really, really hard four days though. Something happened to my plated box on the way to my house and I've had to cook for myself and like meal plan. No good. Interprep dish. Actually, yep. That actually is something that I did do. I, I went to prep dish to see what they had, which is amazing. So well, so when that happens, when you don't receive the, I guess, the food, what happens? Do they just, do they refund you or do they send you a new box? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, they refund. Well, see, the problem is they're like, well, we could send you a new box by next Wednesday. I'm like, well, my next order is coming on Tuesday. So that would not be very helpful. <laughs> But they were very sorry. They gave me, of course, a complete refund and also two dessert credits so I could get dessert a couple times. But I still had to scramble. But you just realize how you get hooked on something and you get used to it. 
you know, whether it's plated or green chef or prep dish or any of these amazing services that we come to rely on when something happens, you just don't even remember how to live your life. It's so true. I was like, I don't know what we're going to eat. I don't know how we're going to do this. And then of course, thank goodness for things like prep dish. Cause then you can like, all right, at least I have access to recipes. I can find something that, cause before it was always like spaghetti and let's order a pizza. But now, you know, we have all these other options and I don't have to do that. So true. I have some exciting news. Well, sort of. Well, I love exciting news. What is your exciting news? So yesterday I interviewed Dr. Dan Pompa. Are you familiar with him? I'm a big fan of his. I know his name. I can't think of what he's famous for. What's his big thing? Fasting and detox, basically. Okay. Well, where is he? Is he a researcher? He, I'm really not familiar with him. He's a doctor and he has his podcast called Cellular Healing. He's like in the whole sphere. So I, I've heard him on a lot of podcasts and talked about his work before. And he's a big, big proponent of fasting. And he, he even leads like fasting challenges and things like that. But I had him on the podcast, on my new podcast, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast yesterday. Oh, it was so great, Jen. We got into so many things and it really made me, I'm coming to realize this more and more, but I think with fasting, because what we got into a lot of the details was, you know, detoxification and fasting and how your body deals with toxins while fasting. And I think that we so often, when people are struggling with fasting, we say, oh, it's because you're not fat adapted. Like that's our go-to answer. But it just really made me realize more and more how much I think toxins often come into play as well with people struggling with fasting. So yeah, it was really revolutionary because he he talked about, you know, when you do go into the fasting process, how your body starts releasing these toxins and how that can create problems with appetite and hunger. And it can be multifaceted. So like your body might not feel safe in a way to release its fat stores because they do have these toxins in them. And that could be a reason people really struggle with the hunger or fasting. And then he was also saying that it can also explain why some people fasting becomes harder after they've been fasting a while. It could be because they've been chipping away at their fat and burning through maybe a subcutaneous fat, but then digging in deep into deeper visceral fat stores where there are toxins stored from like, you know, a while back. And so that's why it could become more difficult, seemingly effortless for a while. And then all of a sudden people have symptoms or are struggling with hunger. So it was, it was really, really interesting. And we obviously discussed, you know, how to work with that and how to still make fasting work for you, not against you, but it was fascinating. And he's a big proponent of like extended fasting as well. You guys would get along so well. He's a huge proponent of clean fasting. He thinks like, honestly, the best thing is just water. And he said, like, even coffee, he's seen that for some people it works well, but for others, it actually creates a blood glucose response that isn't favorable for fasting. So he recommends testing. And he has like a specific way of testing to know if something is working for you. And it has to go with a certain ratio of blood sugar to ketones. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. It won't be out by the time this comes out, but I'll put a link to that show in the show notes. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, and we have some feedback from Christine and her 
Subject is medication concerns. And she said, I absolutely love your books, Facebook groups, and the podcast and have been a faithful listener each Monday morning since the birth of my sweet baby boy. He is turning two this December. Wow, time flies. Side note for me, that is a long time. He's going to be two. That We've been doing this a long time. Oh, wow. That that really puts it in perspective. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, she said, I was listening to your podcast this morning and I was startled to hear Jen so casually state that she and her husband are not fans of pharmaceutical drugs and the conversation that ensued. As a therapist, I have seen countless individuals come in for help with debilitating anxiety, depression, and OCD symptoms. They are unable to function in daily living. When the best course of action is therapy, healthy lifestyle changes, and a good SSRI, not addictive, there is often hesitation with medication. Usually the only reason for this is the stigma that goes along with medications. It's heartbreaking to watch people needlessly suffer when there is a medication that will help them get through a season of life and allow them a clear mind to process and build coping skills. For some clients, these medications literally save their lives as the intensity of suicidal ideation can rapidly progress to severe. I know that there was no harm intended in the comment, and Jen's go-to is probably going to be, of course, talk with your doctor, but it's the subtle negative comments and attitudes about mental health medication that shape the view of a client in a desperate situation. These kinds of comments are what take medication off the table for people who need it. They hear a friend, family member, or someone they respect make a negative comment about antidepressants and they don't consider it an option. Or when they do take it, they have feelings of guilt and shame. I never thought I would write in with a criticism because I love you ladies so much. I feel like you have walked with me on my health journey for the past two years. Thank you so much for everything you do. I really do appreciate you both so much. So just some friendly feedback, Christine. And I'm really glad Christine wrote that in. One thing I want to say right off the bat is the reason my husband hesitates to take medications in general is not anything to do with the stigma. And I want to make sure that that's very, very clear. It's more along the lines of he's a medicinal chemist with a PhD in medicinal chemistry, which is drug design, pharmaceuticals. So his concern is long-term side effects. And just as an example, I was once prescribed an antibiotic for an ear infection. This is years ago. And I came home with a prescription and he's like, no, you need a different one because these are the side effects associated with this particular antibiotic. Call your doctor back. So I called my doctor back and he's like, yeah, I can give you a different one. That'll be just fine. And so there should not be any stigma with needing medications. And I want to get that right out there. If you need something you need to have it. And so it's, it's more of a concern for him about the side effects, but absolutely if you need something, you should not feel like there's a stigma involved. And I want to make sure that that's very, very clear. You know, whether it's treating it with feels, the CBD oil that sponsors our podcast, or a traditional pharmaceutical, you know, definitely talk to your doctor, work with your therapist. You know, CBD oil is just gaining traction in the field. Maybe 10 years from now, that'll be something that the profession widely turns to. Maybe not. We don't know. But you know, definitely don't be afraid to get help and don't see that there's a stigma because this is medical. It's not, you know, just something you buck up and get over. Yeah. I'm really glad that we got this email from Christine and I'm glad she wrote it in because I definitely think it's important that we 
clear up our views and our perspective on it for listeners, because we definitely don't want to encourage stigmas. I agree. I mean, in general, I'm just hesitant of pharmaceuticals in general, because I think that they are, just because of the nature of our conventional medical system, they're often prescribed like candy in a way, when oftentimes they might be doing more harm than good. So I'm just hesitant in general with pharmaceuticals. That said, they definitely have their place in every aspect in therapy. So, you know, SSRIs, even with antibiotics for gut issues, everything definitely has their place. So we definitely don't want to encourage stigmas. And I've actually been thinking recently, and I wrote this back to Christine, you know, I've been reading so much about the neuroplasticity of the brain and the ability for our brains to rewire themselves and create new mindsets to deal with issues like depression or anxiety or things like that. And I've even been contemplating the idea of using pharmaceuticals as a, and this is, I'm just positing this theory, but as a catalyst to start that new habitual train of thought in the brain as like a jump start, <laughs> and then going with that, like as a part of your, the season of your life, as she said, and then, you know, weaning off, I can definitely see a place for that. That's just something I've been recently been thinking about. Yeah, I thought this was a great email. Yeah, I think so too. And we absolutely don't want to encourage anybody to go against medical advice or feel that there's a stigma with anything. If I had a health condition, even if it was anxiety, depression, you know, mental health condition, and I needed to go see a therapist, I would talk about what were my options. And I would research with my therapist and talk about side effects and, and things like that. And, you know, I do have an organic medicinal chemist in my back pocket. So <laughs> I would look with him. I have a little more insight than the average person into, you know, different medications. But, you know, it's a trade-off. If you've got something you're trying to heal, but there's also a side effect, sometimes you have to do it. So anyway, thanks again, Christine, for writing in. And absolutely, I agree that people should not hesitate when medication is the best course of action. And we would take it too. My husband and I would both choose medication if, if that were the right way to go. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is excited to offer members a new way to explore their interests with the new Plus Catalog. This holiday season will certainly be more special than last. It's finally time to gather together and exchange thoughtful gifts with the people you care about. In the midst of all the holiday excitement, think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the absolute best time to do it with a special offer of 60% off your first three months. With Audible, you can listen to more of whatever you're into because Audible has it all. An unbeatable selection of audiobooks, tons of binge-worthy podcasts, and exclusive originals all available to download or stream. Here's what you get. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month, like the latest bestseller or hottest new release, yours to keep forever. You can listen to Melanie's book, What When Wine, or either of my books, Delayed on Deny or Fast Feast Repeat. And coming January 4th, you can listen to Cleanish. Here's the best part. You also get full access to Audible's streaming library, the Plus Catalog. Discover your next podcast obsession, check that audiobook off your bucket list, or get lost in a world of original content from celebrity creators, best-selling authors, and leading experts. The kind of stuff you can't hear anywhere else. Stream all you want, as much as you want. No matter where you're going or what you're doing this holiday season, you'll always have just the right thing to listen to at your fingertips. 
Now that I'm doing a lot of driving to the beach and back, Audible is the perfect companion for each trip. There's so much to choose from that I will never be done finding great options. Right now, for a limited time, save 60% on your first three months of Audible. That's only $5.95 a month. Give yourself the gift of listening. For more, go to audible.com slash ifpodcast. That's audible.com slash ifpodcast. Or you can text ifpodcast to 500-500 for 60% off your first three months. That's definitely a gift you'll love to give yourself. And now back to the show. Okie dokie. So we have another listener feedback. This comes from Francis. And Francis says, I wanted to tell you I started taking serapeptase based off of your talk of it on the podcast, and it has done wonders for my trigger thumb. I thought I was going to have to have surgery, but after a week of taking serapeptase on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, I have noticed such a difference. I was compensating for it so much, and while it's still an issue, it's nothing like it was. Love both of your podcasts. Thank you for your honesty and sharing the nitty gritty of your dieting life before IF. I can relate to so much of it. So yay, another <laughs> another serapeptase testimonial. We were talking earlier about pharmaceuticals, but I will say if there is one like quote natural supplement, which does seem to address a wide range of health issues for a lot of people, serapeptase does seem to do that. For listeners who are not familiar, it's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. So when you take it in the fasted state, it basically goes into your bloodstream and can break down residual proteins and build up in your body, sort of like autophagy works during fasting. A lot of people really benefit from it, and we find that it actually can catalyze some of the benefits that you achieve during fasting. But if you'd like more information, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash serapeptase, I made that page and it has lots of information and links there. All right. I'm not going to say how long it's been since I've taken it. <laughs> A while. Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I took it. I just, I don't know, feeling great without it. But, you know, I started taking it for a specific reason. So I'm a big believer in if you have not something you think it will address, that's why to take it. It really clears my head. I just find it very supportive of my daily life. So whenever I go off of it and then bring it back, I, I'm like, why did I ever stop? So, yep. Yep, then that that tells you that it's doing something. This is true. All right, shall we jump into the questions for today? Yes, and this one is from Carly, and the subject is found IF by accident. Hi, ladies. Love your show and all the great info you both share. I discovered IF by total accident. My husband and I got into a huge fight one weekend, and I didn't eat anything and just drank water. Big stress like that usually causes me to lose my appetite. But then on Monday, my coworkers were like, wow, did you lose weight? And at the time, another coworker was doing IF, but I wasn't into it as I believed I needed to eat all day. Yes, one of those people, LOL. So I told her I would join her and try it. I started slowly and added more hours each day. Fast forward five weeks or so, and I could easily do 18.6, sometimes more. I decided to change my diet some by eating things like grilled cheese, cookies, margaritas twice a week, etc. within reason, if that sounds reasonable. And get this, I'm losing weight. How is this possible? I'm literally eating things I would normally not ever go near as I used to be mostly paleo. Sorry, Jen. 
I lost a little over 10 pounds and would like to lose 10 to 15 more. So what are your thoughts here? Will I eventually stop losing if I continue to eat like this? Or will I get to my goal eating what I want, but within reason? That means one slice of cake, not the whole cake. Maybe two slices. What is going on? Like Jen, I have done every diet out there. Used to work out twice a day to burn more. Nothing ever worked. Why is this working so easily and quickly? Am I going to wake one day and be fat again? I love this email from Carly. Such enthusiasm. And I think that is something that a lot of people experience with intermittent fasting is it's like the flip side of the people who really struggle at the beginning to become fat adapted or to fall into the groove. There are some people that they started and it's just great (laughs) right, right from the beginning. I do wonder, Jen, if maybe this is the case for people who are naturally just metabolically very flexible. Because I think, you know, some people are more inclined to have metabolic flexibility than others. I do wonder if people who it does work so easily right off the bat, if maybe their metabolism is just really primed for it. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And also, you know, I've talked about my own journey of how I tried IF for years from 2009 to 2014 and could never make the lifestyle stick. It was just really, really hard. And then I did that whole summer of keto in 2014 and didn't lose any weight. But then as soon as I switched over to intermittent fasting, I also reintroduced all the things like grilled cheese, cookies, and margaritas twice a week. Like (laughs) that sounds like the way I was eating then. I was, I really added back everything and started losing weight. And I, I feel like that period of keto helped my body become adapted. And so perhaps her paleo period helped her body, you know, become metabolically healthy. And now she's, she's able to access the fat during the fast. I really think that keto time, even though I didn't lose any weight, I think it did some, some things inside of me here and there. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. I've been recently contemplating if for that same reason, it might be beneficial for a lot of people to do a short-term keto approach, like with the understanding that it is a short-term approach, but just to become fat adapted, address insulin receptors, heal that, and, and like create just, it's like creating a, um, you know, a foundation. Yeah. I actually have that in Delay Don't Deny as an adaptation strategy. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's actually something I talked about interviewing Dr. Pompa yesterday. He's a huge, huge fan of seasonal eating and oscillating dietary approaches. He thinks we should eat on a seasonal perspective. And then he also thinks the metabolism and our bodies can benefit greatly from switching things up, be it monthly and then even to the point of like weekly for some people. So I think that's a great strategy for a lot of people. See, I'm also a big believer in in switching things up, but I just happened to naturally do it. You know, even when I was trying to lose weight, I would have a a big blowout day just because, you know, we had a special event or went out late and went out of town. And so I've not been one of those people who was, you know, I'm going to have a one hour window every single day and stick to it forever. You know, there was a period of time, which is kind of funny. It was back in 2016, right after Cal made the window app, I was having the five hour eating window. And there were a few months that summer, the summer of 2016, when I'm like, my goal is to have a perfect month where I never have an eating window longer than five hours. And I'm pretty goal oriented when I set my mind to it. Do you know how many perfect months I had during that period of time? Zero. 
because, you know, I can remember one of the months I went on a college trip with Will to look at colleges. And I was like, you know what? I'm on this college trip and I'm going to eat lunch with my son. And I was like, who cares? I don't need to be perfect. And so that was the beauty of intermittent fasting. But I've never gotten into a rut because that's just not the way I live my life. I don't take days off here and all the time just for the heck of it. But if there's a reason and there's something going on, I'll open my window and have an eight-hour window that day. And so I think that's a great approach. But I want to say one more thing back to Carly. She mentioned you know grilled cheese, cookies, margaritas, and cake. I actually had a grilled cheese one night this week. You know, We had a grilled cheese and potato soup. It was absolutely delicious. And today is Will's birthday, my younger son. He is 20 today. And we're going to have birthday dessert. So, yeah. I have a thought about all of that. I think if your body can tolerate it and you don't react negatively, like the effects don't linger beyond that, you know, celebratory moment of the food and everything. I think it's important to have acceptance of all potential ways that people's bodies react to food. Because I think some people, like you, Jen, you're the perfect example. It's so wonderful. You can have these meals that might not be something that you would normally have, might not, in your opinion, be the most health supporting, but you know that it's in this moment. It has a place. You feel great while having it. It's with family. It's with celebration. And then, you know, you know that you can get back on the the train quickly. And so I think that's wonderful. I think it's a wonderful way to be. Then I think there are some people that they do know that having these certain meals actually makes them feel worse than not having it. And I think for those people, it's also important to be okay with that because I think some people feel like in a way stressed that they can't seemingly have these indulgences without feeling bad. And when they feel like they should be able to, does that make sense? Well, I think no one should ever eat anything that makes them feel bad. For example, Will can't have shrimp because he's allergic to shellfish. So I'm not going to serve a shrimp dinner. He might think it's delicious, but he would have a, you know, <laughs> a reaction to it. And is there any you know sadness? And no, you just don't eat it because you know it doesn't work for your body. It's a similar kind of a thing. Like if you are, for example, celiac, you're not going to like you have a birthday cake made with wheat. Yeah. So like, I think, I think it's so important to just like be okay with everything. So like, if you can have it, awesome. Be okay with that. If you can't have it, awesome. Be okay with that. But I also think it's so interesting that we have so many feelings about something as simple as a grilled cheese that we're like thinking it as some kind of exotic treat. I mean, it, to me, it's food. It's a grilled cheese. It was delicious. Yeah. Well, I guess like for you, but then for another person that grilled cheese might wreck their digestion for like a week. You know, so it, that's why I think it is so crazy or so odd that we have all of this extreme emotion and drama tied to something like a grilled cheese. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. But I mean, if it wrecks your digestion, that's definitely something to <laughs> figure out. Why is it wrecking your digestion? I, you know, who was it we had? What was his name? The guy that was so awesome. It was Rousseau. Yeah. Yeah. Rousseau. I loved him because he talked about eliminating things for a time until you could heal and then reintroducing them. That his his goal as a doctor was not that you, your digestion could never handle a grilled cheese ever again for the rest of your life, but it was figure out what's wrong. I mean, of course, Will can never eat shrimp, right? There's some things that are definitely a reaction you're not going to recover from, but if something's tearing your digestion up, you don't have to assume it's forever. There's hope that you can heal it depending on what the cause is. This is so true. It's even something I've been like, you know, all of the, 
all the obsession with the carnivore diet recently. I think so many people turn to that as a potential long-term lifestyle when I think for a lot of people, it could be a really similar situation like you just said, where they can use it as a temporary time of life to heal and seal their gut and maybe calm their reactions to foods and then bring in foods in the future. It's also similar to what you were just saying earlier about doing the keto diet you know, for a short amount of time and then bringing things back in. So I think it's just because we get so... We want to find like the one thing that will always work forever and ever. The idea of changing things up can be scary to some people. But our bodies do change and something we tolerate for a while. Maybe one day you won't tolerate that and vice versa. Yeah. And that is, that is okay. Back again to Carly's question. So I guess, so her actual question, I guess she's wondering if like, it's going to stop working basically. Is she going to be able to like, is this too good to be true? And it's, I'm going to wake up one day and it was all a mirage. So what are your thoughts, Jen? No, you're not going to wake up one day and be fat again. Absolutely not. That's the beauty of this. I talk in delay, don't deny, and I've said it before on podcasts, but get you some honesty pants, right? You know, there are pants that are tight or a dress or a skirt or whatever, or a belt, something that's tight and try that on from time to time. One thing about me, there have been seasons over the years that I've been in what I consider to be maintenance where some things got a little tighter for a brief time, very briefly. And then I was like, oh, this is a little tight. And then I'll only have one maybe Friday and Saturday for a few weeks and not have it during the week. And then boom, the pants fit again. And so it's just a matter of keeping a handle on it. I retry those things on from time to time. I've got this one little skirt that I put on. If that skirt fits me, I know I'm in good shape. And so I don't have to do anything overly restrictive. I just am a little more mindful. Maybe I don't open my window with lunch on Sunday just because I feel like it that day. I'm like, oh, you know, my pants are a little tight. I think I can wait till four. You really do have the tools. If you just really keep your eye on it, maybe for some it's the scale. For me, like I said, it's clothing because I haven't weighed since 2017. But if you keep your, your eye on it, you know, fasting is a tool you keep pulling out and pull it out every single day and get a handle on it. If you start feeling things tightening up, control it right that minute. Yeah. So Carly, because I guess there are actually two questions. She wants to know, will she eventually stop losing if she continues to eat like that? And then will she wake up fat? So for <laughs> to reiterate what Jen just said, no, you're not going to wake up one day and have magically gained all the weight back. I highly doubt that. And that is the beautiful thing about intermittent fasting, especially once it does become a lifestyle. But I do think there is a slight caveat for Carly's other question, which was, she wants to know if she will, you know, stop losing weight if she keeps eating like this. And I do think that is an area where, I mean, honestly, Carly, there's no point. I mean, cross that bridge when you come to it is my opinion. Like why stress about the future problem when it's working right now? I would just celebrate the moment. But I mean, there is the possibility that you might reach a point where you plateau with your approach right now, and then you might need to curtail the intake of the indulgences in order to continue seeing progress. But that's freeing because you can just know that, you know, if that does happen where you stop losing the weight, it's honestly a really good place to be for you because there are a lot of changes you could make if you do stop losing weight without going extreme. Whereas, you know, some people I think fear that they're going to stop losing weight and they're already on what they feel might be like a restricted paradigm. So Carly, you're in a really good place because if you do stop losing weight, I mean, there are a lot of changes that you can make from the dietary perspective. So yeah. Do you have thoughts about that, Jen? Well, just that eventually you will stop losing weight 
and be at your ideal weight. (laughs) That's just a little added point there. Eventually we all stop losing weight. And that's, that's exactly what we want to happen. You know, when we get into a, a good size for our body. So yeah, if you do stop losing weight at a point where you're not satisfied with your body yet, even so continue to pay attention to how your body might be changing. Because I've told my story before about how my body continued to change over the years, even without scale weight loss. So just keep that in mind. The scale becomes a tool that's not as effective the closer we get to our ideal body. You know, people can get really obsessed with the the number. And I want to take you away from that. You know, as you are maybe one size out from your ideal, once you get to that point, it's time to start focusing on the size and not what the scale says. Yep, I think that's great. But especially if you only have 10 to 15 that you want to lose, you may never lose 10 to 15 more pounds, but you may find you're smaller than you ever thought you would be at a higher weight than you had been before at that same scale weight. So keep that in mind. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. 
complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash IF podcast and use the coupon code IF podcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's J O O V V dot com forward slash IF podcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, so the next question comes from Bethany and the subject is fasting research. And Bethany says, Hi, Jen and Melanie. Thank you so much for the podcasts and all the time and effort you put into demystifying IF and its many benefits. I have been IFing since mid-May 2019, and I have lost over 20 pounds and have gone from a plus size 3X to about a 1X, and I'm feeling so much more hopeful now about having found a way of eating that is actually sustainable and healthy. Yay. My question is, I know fasting works for many of us, but is it possible that it doesn't work for some people? I know that some other weight loss programs mostly companies that profit from the weight loss and regain cycle, in my honest opinion, cite data on, quote, success, but when you probe deeper, the results are really flawed. For example, they reflect only the minority of people who stayed with that program and often only in the short term. The people who gained weight dropped out, so you never see their data. I sometimes worry about this when I read some of the online posts. It is great seeing the success stories, but do the people who don't see progress just disappear? I even sometimes, after many months, I do wonder, even for those who trust the process, if there may be people who won't see success. I wish we had a really good long-term study on this, tracking an entire population to see the variability in results for everyone. That could also really help those that see slow progress or plateaus, etc. In the meantime, I've been telling people that as far as I can tell in my study of one, and for many, many others, it works but it may take some experimentation in the details, time-restricted eating, ADF, one meal a day, etc., to find your own personal approach because we are all different. I don't mean to sound negative. I really love IF and have seen benefits to both my weight and my health. I'm just one who loves to see the data and I know you are too. Maybe we need to all band together and create a study like you talked about in your recent podcast, Jen, to take on this question. We might need to crowdfund it though. Where else would that money come from? I know I'd willingly participate. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again for providing such great support to this community. Yeah, this is a great question. You know, does IF, quote, work for everyone? And y'all have probably heard me say before, unless you're a brand new listener and started with this episode, (laughs) that intermittent fasting is the health plan with the side effect of weight loss. And I really believe that is true. But I, I know I've also said this before, too. Intermittent fasting is only going to work for weight loss if it addresses the reason why you're overweight. And you've got to figure out, you know, why is your body holding on to extra weight? And if intermittent fasting isn't going to address that for you, then you might have to dig a little deeper. I mean, it can be complicated. It can be thyroid. It can be medications that you're on. It could be years of dieting have slowed your metabolism. There could be so many things. So, You know, you made a good point. There's so many things in here, Bethany, that I wanted to hit on. For one thing, 
at the beginning, you said, you know, maybe it doesn't work for some people. I do firmly believe that even if it isn't working for weight loss for you, there's so many health benefits to intermittent fasting that I would never just quit and give up and go back to not doing intermittent fasting. You know, as I've shared before, my husband does it just for the health benefits. And so he wasn't ever trying to lose weight. He just does intermittent fasting because it's a healthy way to live. So I would like everybody to kind of get into your head. I am going to do intermittent fasting for the rest of my life because it's healthy. And I'm also going to tweak what I need to until I see the weight loss that I'm looking for. Because think of those as the big picture is intermittent fasting for health. And then within there, what can you tweak to see the weight loss that you're looking for? And Bethany said, do the people who don't progress just disappear? Yeah, I think that does happen. It happened to me from 2009 to 2014. I would quit and then I would come back, then I would quit, then I would come back because I wasn't seeing the progress that I thought I should see. It wasn't quick enough. I wasn't consistent enough. I never really got through the adaptation phase ever before I would quit. And then of course it was hard. So I do think a lot of people do just disappear over time. But I will say I've had these online communities since 2015. It's been over four years now since I've been running at least one of the support groups. And we've got people that have been around since the beginning. And, you know, we'll have somebody who's struggling for a year or two to figure it out. We have somebody in one of my groups who has really had a hard time and she just started delaying sugar and alcohol and is seeing results. You know, a lot of times we don't want to do certain things because, you know, we enjoy the premise that we can have, you know, quote, whatever we want. But in all honesty, just as we talked about earlier in the conversation about the grilled cheese, maybe you can't have everything you want right now. You have to delay it a little bit longer to see the goals that you want. And so people who are struggling have to work through this often quite emotional process because we want to enjoy what we want in our window, but maybe that's not your problem. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your thyroid. So yes, you said yourself, it works, but may take some experimentation in the details. I genuinely believe that, you know, if time-restricted eating or the eating window approach is not giving you the results that you want, and you've tried it for a year and you're not losing any weight, it is time to dig deeper. Maybe try alternate daily fasting. See what that does for you. I really believe that that tweak is a good one for a lot of people when time-restricted eating or the eating window approach doesn't give you what you're looking for. I do wish there was some kind of data with the you know the long term, but we are the experiment, right? <laughs> I just know anecdotally from all the time in the Facebook groups, there are just so many people who struggle, 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 and then finally find the tweak that works for them. But it's not easy. You know, Lord knows if it were easy, we would not have this multi-billion dollar weight loss industry that we have. We would be like, here's what you do, everybody, and everybody would do it and everybody would be thin. If it were easy, we would not have this problem. So it is not easy. And we have to just, you know, face it. If we could buy weight loss or, or if it was easy, think about Oprah. She has so much money and so many resources and all the top minds in the world, and she still struggles. And, you know, she's been very candid and open with it. I love Oprah. Gosh, I would like to be the person to introduce her to intermittent fasting and help her tweak her plan to find what works great for her. I would love to do that. But, you know, if you could buy it and it were easy, she would have conquered it a long time ago. So for anybody who's struggling and feeling like, you know, this just, quote, doesn't work, it isn't going to work for me, I don't want you to feel that way because, There's always a tweak. There's something you can do. Think of intermittent fasting as your lifestyle. 
and you're doing it for health purposes, but then what's it going to take for you to find the weight loss? And that might not mean, you know, fast longer, harder, more, restrict more. It might be taking a more gentle approach, relaxing a little bit. Don't one meal a day harder and harder and harder till your window is only 20 minutes long. That's not going to be good for your body either. Maybe scale back, maybe exercise less, maybe do a different, more gentle form of exercise. You want to feel good in your skin. What do you think, Melanie? I just said a lot of things. I think I just like (laughs) rambled around in a circle. (laughs) No, I think that was absolutely fantastic. Everything you said. And so Bethany, when I was doing a lot of the research for what, when wine, I was reading a lot of studies looking at intermittent fasting and oftentimes they compare them to fasting approaches to things like calorie restriction or typical dieting. And in those situations, they actually often do record the compliance level. So the amount of dropouts or how easy the participants rated adhering to the different diets. And one of the main consistencies I saw across the board was the fact that compliance for fasting was pretty much always very high. And we talked about that recent ADF study and cell metabolism where people, I mean, people were doing ADF with 36 hour fasts and the dropouts was like, I mean, it was almost it's like only one or two people. And so I think that's something we see. I know she does talk about like hiding data and stuff, but in the studies I've read, it's been very promising showing how, and that's often one of the conclusions of the studies is that intermittent fasting may provide the benefits of something like calorie restriction, but without the struggle. They don't put in that terminology, but yeah, basically without the, the struggle. What you're saying is so true. Even the people we see in the groups that are struggling and, you know, my advanced Facebook group for people who have all read Delay, Don't Deny, we have a little more advanced conversation in there, but we'll have people who are struggling and have been trying it for a long time and not seeing the weight loss that they want, but they don't want to quit intermittent fasting. That's the thing. They want to make it work. They know that they love the way they feel when they're doing it. And so that's something very infrequently is someone doing it long term and wants to quit because they hate the way they feel. I don't know if I've ever seen that. (laughs) You know, once your body adapts, it just you may think emotionally, I want to eat more frequently, but then you try it for a while and you're like, oh, yeah, that was not fun at all. And then people keep coming back to intermittent fasting because of how great they feel. Yeah, it's honestly often the exact opposite of other dietary approaches where the longer you do it, the harder it gets. With fasting, it's for many people, the complete opposite. (laughs) The longer you do it, the more you... Which I think, you know, that's right there is huge evidence that our bodies like it. Yeah. And I also even don't want to bring this up because this is so rare. But to answer your question, are there some people that fasting just is not going to work for? It is true. There, There is like a very, very small amount of people who might have genetic, might have genes which affect their ability, for example, to safely enter ketosis or something. But that is going to be quite the anomaly. And that's not, I mean, I I don't personally know. I think we got one listener email once out of the hundreds and hundreds of emails that came from somebody who actually did have this condition. So of course, with everything, there's going to be a type that it does not work for. But I think in general most people can do intermittent fasting and would benefit from it. And I was thinking, she talks about, it's a shame that we don't have you know, a long-term study showing the effects. We don't, but we do have history. 
<laughs> and we do know that as a population, as a, a species, we lived and evolved with fasting as a, I mean, it was a, a forced fasting just due to the, the natural availability of food, but there is that testimonial. Well, I think it's telling that all major religions have it as part of the religious practice, just because obviously if it's something that was deep into every culture, physiologically, there's got to be something to that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was actually something that um, we talked about yesterday with Dr. Pompa was we're talking about dietary approaches and fasting and how they both appear in different religions and cultures throughout history. Because we were talking first about how the, like in the Bible and Leviticus, it talks about certain foods being clean and unclean. And now we realize that that was likely due to those were the type of foods that most likely harbored toxins or bacteria or were not safe to eat. So things like pork and shellfish and stuff like that. But then we were also talking about how fasting appears throughout cultures and religions. And it's often been posited as a spiritual, you know, for spiritual reasons. But I think the physical benefits are obviously very supportive. So Yep. And and of course, research is bearing that out. The research that came out earlier this year, it might have been Okinawa University. I can't remember. It was somewhere in Japan about they followed these people that were fasting. I'm talking off the top of my head. Maybe it was 56 hours and all the different compounds that were in their, their bloodstream over the course of the fast that increased. And they were even surprised by what they found. The research is supporting the ancient wisdom. This is so true. And you know what it always does, right? Like when they used to eat the thyroid of the, the reindeer up there in the <laughs> in the frozen areas, they would kill the reindeer and everybody would eat the thyroid. And turns out there's a good medical reason why they, they did that. They just, they didn't know. They didn't know what they were doing, but. Or like fermenting foods and. Yeah, exactly. Now we know why. Oh yeah, that is healthy. Here's why. You know? <laughs> they didn't know, but it, it worked. So. I'm fascinated by that. I think that's one of the things that fasting does as well is it it is in a way returns you to that natural intuitive state because by not taking in anything, it's not something you're doing. It's something you're not doing. So it's letting you finally just rest and let your body do when you take away all of these things that you're throwing at it and, you know, trying to fix and trying to make it do and you just let it do what it wants to do in its natural state. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it's just so healing because you're removing the roadblocks. I always think about the quote Zach Bush has said about just something about like the, the body's massive ability to heal if we just let it, <laughs> you know, we just like stop putting in things, it will naturally restore. So no pun intended because he did make that restore supplement, <laughs> which I do take that every day. Anyways, shall I move on to the next question? Yes, this is from Mike, and the subject is extreme fasting. Mike says, what is exactly extreme fasting? Are you talking about intermittent fasting seven days a week or not eating at all? Also, not sure what you mean by insulin release. I'm a type 2 diabetic. I have to take insulin shots as needed. I also lift weights six days a week. When you say release, do you mean the body does not keep the insulin needed to control the glucose in your blood? All right. So two good questions here from Mike. So I guess it depends on the individual conversations that we're having, but I think in general with extreme fasting, I think we're typically referring to fasting like more than a 
day. So, so more than like a one meal a day. So although, well, well, no, because ADF. I think, yeah, once you get beyond alternate daily fasting, once you get beyond 36, 12 to 42, six in that range could be alternate daily fasting, you know, with that two meals and the, the refeeding day, the up day. But once you get beyond that, it starts to get extended fasting. So like, would you say after, after about 36 hours or so of fasting or after 48? Well, I would say if you're beyond an alternate daily fasting protocol, and I, I wouldn't even call it extreme fasting. I call that extended fasting. That's the lingo that we use in the community, extended fast. So I think we've got the daily approach where you're, you're eating every day, the time-restricted eating, eating window approach. Then we've got the alternate daily fasting where you may be fasting up to 42 hours very regularly, but having a big eating day in between. And then when you start moving beyond that, that's when I think you get to extended fast territory. Sometimes people will say, I didn't extended fast today. I fasted for 24 hours. I'm like, no, that's not extended, you know, or even 36, although it may feel like it to somebody who is new to intermittent fasting. But the word extreme, I think when you get into, you know, like multiple day fast, that seems extreme to me. I agree. And then I guess the other this isn't really the same thing, but I think people can become extreme with their fasting if they're doing one meal a day every day and also chronically restricting and calorie restricting. Then it's like maybe the fasting itself is an extreme, but they have become extreme with their fasting because they're following an unsustainable, chronic, restricted situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or like somebody who's like, I'm going to do alternate daily fasting and I'm going to eat one meal every other day. That seems extreme to me. One meal a day is not extreme. Alternate daily fasting is not extreme, but one meal a day, every other day, the combination of the two, that would seem to be extreme to me. But doing intermittent fasting itself seven days a week, I don't consider that to be extreme. Not at all. Because I do that. (laughs) And then what are your thoughts on the insulin release? Well, I mean, you know, our pancreas releases insulin in response to food. Now, if you're a type 1 diabetic or if you're a type 2 diabetic and your pancreas is needing support from insulin that you take externally, your exogenous insulin, you have to take insulin shots, then maybe your pancreas is not releasing insulin in a normal fashion. So you have to take it in the shots version that you've, you've been prescribed by your doctor. So our pancreas, unless your pancreas isn't working right, our pancreas does release insulin to deal with, you know, our blood glucose in, in response to food. So that's what we mean by that. We do want to avoid extra insulin release during the fast. You know, obviously you have to manage your blood glucose as directed by your physician. So, you know, do that. But what we don't want to do is anything that would cause our body to release extra insulin during the fast, you know, like the diet sodas or the sweeteners or the cream in your coffee, eating food. Those are the things we avoid during the fast. We don't want our bodies to release extra insulin because insulin is not bad, right? Insulin is not bad. It's having really high insulin all the time. That's not good for us. Exactly. Yep. So the next question comes from Rotunda and the subject is what the health and Rotunda says, there's a Netflix documentary titled what the health I'm curious. Have either of you seen it? If so, what are your thoughts? Did you watch that Jen? I did watch that and I've watched a a lot of various 
documentaries just because I'm interested in what people are saying. And especially while I was researching for Feast Without Fear, which was in 2017, I'm pretty sure I watched this during that period of time. And I personally reject any type of extremist viewpoint on either direction. You know, I reject the eating carbs is the reason that everyone is unhealthy. No one should ever eat a carb or eating fat is the reason why we're all unhealthy. No one should ever eat fat or eating meat is the reason why we're all unhealthy. No one should ever eat meat. And every one of these extreme documentaries spins a very good tale. And they have scientists and they have doctors and they have data and they convince you. And then you're like, oh, my God, I should never eat that again. And if you really want to have some fun, watch all of them back to back and then you'll be afraid to have anything except water. So they're all very convincing and I don't want to pollute my mind with worrying about all the food of the world. So I talk about this in Feast Without Fear. So if you're somebody who's like having a lot of fear about food, especially after watching an alarming documentary that's convinced you that XYZ is the root of evil of everything, then I would encourage you to read Feast Without Fear. And it talks about why we're all different when it comes to what foods work well for our bodies. Why is that the case? Why is your friend doing great on keto, but you felt awful? In fact, when you went to a plant-based diet, you felt fabulous, but your friend did not. You know, why are we different? So I would encourage you to read Feast Without Fear. I was watching one. I was I have Amazon Prime, and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but I was just scrolling through Amazon Prime on my Apple TV, and there was some food documentary, and I didn't know what the premise of it was. This was a new one, and I started watching it. And then I just kept watching it for interest because I was like, it is so interesting how they're spinning this, <laughs> this whole you know premise. And it's fascinating. The more of them you watch, the more you can just see the formula of how they convince you that this thing is the evil of the world. Anyway, what do you think, Melanie? Yeah. So I was fascinated by that documentary and I actually wrote a very long very detailed review and deconstruction of the film. And I did a lot of research and I looked up all the studies that they were referencing. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. It's just so funny when you hear anything or read a book where someone is like totally vilifying something and they use all these studies, go look at the studies and see if it really says what they say it says. So often it does not. Even in books, books written by doctors, you go look at those studies. You're like, that's not what that study says. Not at all. The word is in there, but it's not, (laughs) you know, it's really crazy. You can't take it at face value. You have to dig deeper. Yeah. I mean, it was shocking when I actually looked at some of the studies that they were referencing and I was like, that's not what you just said. (laughs) So in my blog post, I actually, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. The title, (laughs) the title of the blog post is what the health question mark, exclamation point, meat problems, vegan versus paleo, the origins of disease, cherry picking, and why can't we all be friends? In it, I do go into the details. I talk about their perspective on meat and cancer, on saturated fat, on animal products, cholesterol, meat and bacterial toxins, on sugar and fat and diabetes, on cooking, on pesticides, herbicides, GMOs, dairy, their thoughts on veganism, disease, paleo. I mean, I go into detail. So I I will put a link to that in the show notes. I was thinking I could actually read my conclusion because I kind of sum up my thoughts there. So like my conclusion was, I say, and I went sort of super overboard with this post because guys, it's a very long post. So I hope you enjoy it. I say, here are my relatively brief conclusions. 
I agree 100% that disease is fundamentally tied to diet. I mean, that's sort of my thesis in life. As Dr. Clapper, and he's one of the doctors in that documentary, as he says, it's the food. And then back to me, I say, yes, you bet your sweet life, though I contextually use that word cautiously, it is the food. I also agree that our common medical system simply treats symptoms and perpetuates problems, which is something that that documentary discusses, unlike preventative lifestyle and dietary approaches, which can discourage disease in the first place. I also believe that industries and studies are often funded by biased sources to further breed this problem. I love what the health's discussion of genetics versus epigenetics, which is the idea that diet and lifestyle are what primarily turn our genes on or off. For example, the film points out that only 5% of cancer is actually a genetic mutation and the rest is environment. And I'm also overwhelmingly concerned with the vast problems of pesticides, GMOs, and environmental toxins, and I'm sickened mentally and literally by conventional livestock farming methods. I'm also down with the problems about the negative health effects of processed foods and modern dairy. So much agreement. So those are the points of the film that I definitely, that resonated with me. Actually, if what the health could argue these theses is without cherry picking, misleading, and ultimately supporting a not-so-secret agenda, I could even passionately recommend the film for viewing lack of animal products in their prescribed diet aside. But that is not the case. Ultimately, What the Health takes the insanely complicated topic of health and nutrition and turns it as black and white as Casablanca. Suddenly, every study supports vegetarianism. Suddenly, every illness comes from meat. Suddenly, we weren't sick until we started eating animal products. Suddenly, our digestive system is not made to process animals, despite digesting them for millions of years. Suddenly, plants can do no wrong for our digestive system, despite their often resilient ability to attack our digestive systems with a slew of anti-nutrients. Suddenly, meat can only do wrong, processed or not. Even if, and this is what we were talking about, Jen, even if you go to What the Health's website to look up their references, which you think would be under a section called perhaps studies or sources or support. And I loved this. Instead, you get the page title of facts. Yes, facts, because self-proclaimed hypothesis studies clearly count as facts because evidence clearly counts as facts. Oh, that drove me crazy, Jen, when I went to the website and I was like, really, (laughs) really? And so in the end, what the health commits the very crime it condemns. It cherry picks, skews, and misleads to champion a particular lifestyle. And while a plant-based diet is typically an insanely healthy alternative to the standard American diet, such a diet, like many health diets, including certain manifestations of, quote, paleo, still come with potential detrimental health effects. What about the overwhelming problems linked to grains, which I barely even touched on, What about those needing more B12 for proper methylation? What about mothers needing adequate omega-3s for pregnancy? Is it safe for those prone to diabetes to ingest sugar? Now should we avoid low-toxin wild-caught fish and sustainably raise livestock rich in nutrition? I simply wish what the health could address the problems of our modern food supply, which are toxins, chemicals, hormones, GMOs, etc., and then posit a logical, unbiased argument for a plant-based diet. I'd be all ears. Skewed sensationalism, however, typically wields more harm than good. So why can't we all be friends? And this is just, I just feel so strongly about this. Why can't we just join hands in supporting our health and the environment? 
I didn't even go into my thoughts on sustainable farming methods in the post, and I'll save that for a future post. I just so deeply wish we could fight together against today's toxic food, farming, and medical industry practices and support a sustainable diet inclusive of all the foods we're naturally meant to eat and have been eating for centuries. I wish we could sit in peace around the proverbial and literal dinner table and engage in thoughtful discussion about ideal diets, if such even exist. But such requires an honest evaluation of the, quote, facts, an openness to research, and a welcoming of new findings, and perhaps most importantly, the ability to change when appropriate. And I just said, okay, now I'm getting emotional. Perhaps my time has come to make my own film on the matter. Sorry, that was really long. Those are my thoughts. (laughs) And really put in the name of any other documentary that tries to teach you one best way of eating, and that could be true. It's so easy to get caught up in that, wrapped up in it. And and then you're like convinced that this is the only right way to eat. But, you know, I would like people to try that experiment. Get your favorite diet book that tells you something is bad and go to the resources. Find the studies that they're saying. Look them up. Does it really say that exactly that they said it said? Does it show that? Do that experiment for me. See what happens. I'm always like so shocked when I do that. Yeah. So for example, like right at the beginning of that documentary, they talk about some of the findings from the World Health Organization, which was a study that sensationalized the media. It was called Carcinogenicity of Consumption of Red and Processed Meat. And so according to that study, the World Health Organization, they define the processing of meat as anything that has been, quote, transformed through salting, curing, fermentation, smoking, or other processes to enhance flavor or improve preservation. And that is categorized as a class one carcinogen, the same category, which they make it very clear in the documentary as cigarettes. And then the WHO also concludes that red meat is, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans. And what's interesting, and this is just like a very tiny tweak, but in what the health, they simplify that quote of probably carcinogenic to humans to saying, and I quote from the documentary, the WHO classifies red meat as a group two carcinogen, which is not the same thing. It's like the difference between saying he was classified as a murderer compared to he was classified as probably a murderer. I know it's like a slight difference, but I mean, that's a big difference in my opinion. Did they say red meat or the process? What, was it? what did they say? Yeah. Well, so actually that was my second point. So they did say red meat, but then there's a slight even more nuanced sleight of hand that the documentary pulls. So they next take these thoughts of the WHO that processed meats, which is going to be including things like, you know, bacon and hot dogs and sausage and and just processed, they have things additive as being class one carcinogens and then red meat as probably being a group 2A carcinogen. Then what the health take those conclusions and basically say, you know, all meat causes cancer. If you look up the actual study, what they say in the study is that in the study, they actually don't even concretely link red meat to cancer. In the study, they say, quote, chance bias and confounding could not be ruled out with the same degree of confidence for the data on red meat consumption, since no clear association was seen in several of the high quality studies and residual confounding from other diet and lifestyle risk is difficult to exclude. The working group concluded that there is limited evidence in human beings for their carcinogenicity of the consumption of red meat. So yeah, I mean, that's just one small example, but basically 
it's what everything Jim was saying. Like, I really just encourage people to read the source material and see what's actually being said. And like I said, I just wish we could all be friends and know that different diets work for different people. And that's okay. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, don't let these things scare you. I mean, I think my husband watched this one with me. And at the end of it, I mean, he's a scientist. At the end of it, he's like, oh, my God, we must stop eating these foods. (laughs) I'm like, calm it down. Calm it down. Now let me show you the exact opposite documentary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is has an opposite premise. And let's see what you think there. Then, like I said, you're scared to eat anything. They also do the thing we've talked about before so often that people do is people so often look at things that are combining fat and sugar and seeing negative effects. And for the people who are pro-fat, they're like, it's the sugar. And for the people who are pro-sugar or pro-carbs, they're like, it's the fat. When maybe it's having the fat and sugar all at the same time. Well, and also, usually they're also highly processed. It's like people who say, I don't do well with carbs. And if you start asking them, what do you mean by carbs? They're like, well, you know, donuts. Well, donuts have carbs and lots of fat. So when you look at a donut and you think, gosh, I shouldn't eat that, that's carbs. It also is lots of fat and it's very highly ultra processed. And so there's a lot more going in there than just the carb. So I know that was a lot. Listeners in the show notes, Definitely check out the blog posts because I do a very, very long deconstruction. But yeah, well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So the show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 30. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are also a Himalaya partnered show. If you follow us in the Himalaya app, you can get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance, which is super awesome. So we definitely recommend checking that out. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, and I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.